0: The interesting thing about this country is that instead of jailing writers, people who would jail writers have convinced enough people that writing doesn't matter and that, like, nothing is true. Do you like books? I'm
1: outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. What are you reading? Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing?
2: Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. (laughs) On today's show, Staying in your lane. What does it mean to write from a specific perspective? Must you stay true to what you know? Or can you write a gay character if you're straight? A black character if you're white? Well, in our latest bookable conversation, we've got two authors who dive right into that and dare to veer outside their lanes. Twitter be damned. Sean Stewart Ruff was previously featured on an episode of Bookable that explored young gay love against the backdrop of a desegregating housing project in his terrific debut novel, Finlater. He reached out to James Hanahan, author of Delicious Foods, to check in for the first time in several decades. Needless to say, a lot's happened since the last time they talked. From dissident writers to getting dragged on social media to who owns gay literature, this conversation really delivers. Here's
1: Sean. You know, I I said to you in our first communication or in one of our communications that sort of generally the idea is, you know, um sort of talking about the uh, spaces that uh writers uh kind of roam in. And I think, you know, for you and me specifically, and of course I may be presumptuous in saying this, but um I think that we pretty much uh, sort of are in uh black space, white space, queer space uh in our work. Um and um you know, I feel that, you know, something is happening, uh, which is kind of if not fencing us in, uh, um, sort of restricting us in some kind of way. And we're i we're trying. Think- are trying, yeah, I don't think it will work necessarily, I mean, but it's just such an interesting, you know, phenomenon, um, because it seems so counter, uh, not only to what writers do, but that writers would even be on board with it is, some writers that is, mm. it's really just kind of shocking to me. Um, yeah. And if I can just start with a little anecdote, back in 2009, uh, the wonderful Michelle T and her... Radar readings um, had a basically a reading event that I flew out for, uh, along with a few other people from the East Coast. And anyway, after we all kind of trotted out our our stuff, um, there was a um, you know kind of an audience uh, participation moment where um, you know it was Q and A, basically kind of it was that kind of uh, format. Mm-hmm. And uh, someone in the audience uh, said something which, or asked a question rather, that was very prescient now that I think about it. And I'd probably thought about it before, but it never really sort of occurred to me as uh, regards gay literature. But the person essentially asked the question, who owns gay literature? Uh, you know, who gets to write it, that kind of questioning. Now, I mean, I'm of a certain age, so I grew up reading Patricia Neal Warren, you know, front runner Mm -hmm. and uh, books like that. Um, and, you know, those writers were heterosexual. I mean, I remember reading a John Ritchie book and thinking, my God, I mean, this is what <laughs> queer fiction is really like. You know? <laughs> so of so polite, it's raunchy and dirty and sweaty and smelly. And I mean, I prefer that, needless to say. But, but uh, I wonder what you thought of or what you think of that question uh, and, you know, um, what it means to you. Well, it's always
0: been sort of uh, a question that gets debated over and over again, um, <clears throat> because at first, no one—I mean, I wouldn't say no one—but queer, gay people, whatever we were calling ourselves at the time, um, wanted to write it more than other people. Um, there, there, there was a whole moment I feel like in the '80s and '90s, you know, in in tandem with the AIDS crisis that. You know, there used to be gay bookstores.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that imagine sounds,
0: that. I, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, I mean, it was. I was hoping that it, I. I, you know, I just kind of assumed that it was a, a perpetual thing and it would it would last for a long time. I mean, there still are gay bookstores. I shouldn't. I shouldn't throw all the wonderful gay bookstores that exist now. Um, but there was there was a thing happening that was much more. Uh, you universal I mean it's not universal because it was specifically queer but it was like all the gays mm-hmm. were inv- were involved um whereas like at a certain moment in in gay history a lot of queer people just kind of stopped going to like a different light and those kind of bookstores and it you know shut its doors and there were other bookstores that just disappeared as well
1: mm-hmm. um <clears throat> Do you think that that's the equivalent of like, you know, sort of um, um, uh, the the civil rights movement sort of, uh, you know, sort of uh, making it possible for blacks to sort of be in white spaces legally? It's the same kind of thing, you know, where queers really began to feel a lot more comfortable in general spaces enough so that they would forsake spaces that were theirs. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, well, I think the internet did a lot of, um, a lot to sort of,
0: Disperse um, areas that were sort of gay spaces, right? Mm. It's like the bars who needs to go to a bar anymore now that you've got an app on your phone? You can just find a gay man and, you know, have him over to your house. Or maybe he's not even gay. Maybe he's just sort of curious. (laughs) Or, or, you know, Um, so I think, uh, although, you know, I've been out of that scene for a long time, I still sort of peek at the apps and everything just to know. A little bit more of what's going on out on the out on the field, as they might say. Yeah, right. right. Like, what are the what are gay people doing? <laughs> who wanna, what are these people doing who wanna hook up? And like, you know, reminding myself of how nice it is to be married in a long-term monogamous relationship and not have to deal with a lot of sort of uh questions about that. Mm-hmm. Um but uh Wait, where I've completely, I was going to answer that first question. And then I was just about to get to it. And you, you asked the second question.
1: Well, um, like, you were talking about the stores, uh, where, in places that right, gay right. people congregated and that there was a kind of universality to understanding our understanding. Was there, of there was a like moment where, where
0: gay bookstores were extremely popular with gay people, mm-hmm. gay men, especially, um, and that moment seemed to disappear, you know. Almost concurrently with like protease inhibitors, didn't I? Don't know if there's a connection <laughs> at all, but you know oh, something about the, death, of course. <laughs> but yeah, I mean something about the AIDS crisis, like brought people together to like put you know to to enjoy and share literature. And I guess it was. Uh, I I am not certain. I mean, there were also like a lot of really fantastic authors who were, who were doing their best work around that time. And many of them are no longer with us. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um,
0: so, um, there was, it was, it, it was a moment, not just in, in the gay community, but it was a moment when the, the gay community was, uh, uh, showing itself to have literary, like a literary community that uh, was meaningful within the literary community that mm-hmm. was more mainstream, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Um, but as far as who owns gay literature, it depends on how you want to define it, right? Because you know, it's not as if no straight person can ever write a gay character that is, you know, even ha- that's halfway convincing, or that you know, you know. It, 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 I think sent a a a gay a gay character who is the center of a book by a straight person is sort of like the more difficult, you know, the high degree of difficulty thing to try to pull off. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are the, um, the centrality of the character doesn't necessarily have to be super high to be visible. Um, so, is, does a book that includes a gay person become gay literature? Does a book that that promotes and supports gay um, people as equal to anybody else is is that gay in the same way that feminism is feminism when it it's a, it supports the idea that women are equal? I mean, in that case, I I feel like everyone can can play if you mm-hmm. want to say. But not everybody, I, I don't think, is going to be received in quite the same way. I think there are just a lot of different ways, and this is a good thing, right? right. That there are a lot of different ways um, to look at artistic production in particular, uh, or in general, I should say, and, uh, and what, what it means to include gay characters in any story, and then mm-hmm. what it means to central, you know, centralize lives of gay people. And not to make them seem, you know, unrealistic. Or if they are to be unrealistic, then they're unrealistic in a way that has integrity, which is a tough thing. I think for people to understand what that's supposed to mean. I, nowadays, I don't know people. Oddly, I feel like people are losing a sense of like artifice as fun and yes. and you know, um, fantastic. On the one okay, on the one hand, I think there's all this um, people really seem to want their, their literary fiction to be as true as possible. And then they want fantasy fiction. Hmm. And for some reason it's, it's possible. It's impossible to see that there is a difference or excuse me, Not it's not impossible to see that there's a difference, but it's impossible to, to have one of them, take on any of the qualities of the other, right? So it's like either yes, we're dealing true. with a fantasy world mm-hmm. or we're dealing with absolute reality even when we're talking about fiction.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And those, those places where fiction seems to diverge from experiences that are lived um, in, a, in a different sort of like experience that are like lived by actual people um,
1: as opposed to, you know, unicorns. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah, six like figure or is it seven figure unicorns? <laughs> yes, there's,
0: there's so there's a way in which like you know it's one or the other. There's no there's no give. You know? mm.
1: A lot of well, well, you know, let's up the ante a little bit. I mean, what you've just said um, speaks to, you know, sort of maybe the general, um, uh, a general look at what's happening, let's say, in the literary fiction markets and the sure. fantasy markets. But mm-hmm. if you um, sort of insert, you know, black gay fiction into the mm-hmm. story, then we're talking about something that might be slightly more, um, let's say, loaded or dangerous, as you said, uh, because a misstep. Uh, in, you know, a characterization, you know, um, a, uh, let's say a use of, um, you know, dialogue uh, where a person is speaking slang, you know, yeah. suddenly opens the door to uh, something um uh, very critical in the way of response. I mean, particularly if it's a white person writing. I think that even <laughs> black writers, frankly, are are probably not too far from being censored in the way that uh, we sort of tell our stories. If they, for instance, um, you know, show um, too much blackness, uh, um, uh, too much real. What is that? It <laughs> oh, wait. What
0: do you what What do you mean by too much? Well, I like, just you know, oh, I don't know, oh, I think I know what you mean. Right, like airing airing Black dirty laundry in public.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, remember Alice Walker, when she published The Color Purple, um, how she was just berated, I remember. I mean, she won a Pulitzer Prize, but she was berated for um, the portrayal of Black men in that story, mm-hmm. um, as if, you know, she had basically, uh, you know, committed some cardinal sin um, uh, mm-hmm. in airing dirty laundry. Uh, yeah. But of course, you know, this policing of... Um, you know, the um, artistic production of Black artists has been going on for a long time by Black intellectuals, primarily. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, and um, um, Jesse Fawcett Redmond, they ran The Crisis uh, as a kind of, uh, you know, magazine that um, definitely gave voice to Uh, Creative people who uh, fell in line with their, you know, sort of goal, which was to always uh, put front and center this kind of propaganda. Uh, I mean, it was Mm -hmm. propaganda in the sense that it was positive
0: propaganda.
1: Well, in the sense that, you know, I think um, writers having to sort of produce work that sort of challenged the status quo. I mean, you couldn't write, for example, a story, a queer story. Uh, As a matter of fact, I mean, one of the issues, I, I think. Uh, with the whole Harlem Renaissance movement was, is that it was co- creatively out of control. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the artists uh, who were producing work were basically doing their own thing, and right. that thing turned often turned out often to be queer, uh, uh-huh. which was really too much for you know the sort everybody. Of the, For everybody. Exactly. I mean, Carl Van Vechten was, uh, you know, kind of in the mix there. So you know how sleazy he was. (laughs) (laughs) So he had a lot to do with, you know, the decadence. Uh, um, But um, and, and, and just briefly, you know, of course, after uh, 19 uh, was it 1930? I think. Uh, artistic production by African Americans, well, by most uh, creative Americans, fell dramatically because of the Depression. Mm-hmm. And then you had white writers who were becoming authorities on, you know, black life and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and writing books about black people and writing fiction, um, you know, um, uh, that was about black life, etc. And you know, of course, the intelligentsia railed against it. Uh, Alain Locke and all those guys were just basically kind of in a in a very difficult position right because mm-hmm. uh, their jobs was to be um or, or to be critics uh but critics of nothing is <laughs> not <laughs> exactly you know a productive uh life and it certainly doesn't uh earn you money and they were all trying to survive in those days too so you know we're not at a moment like that but it does feel however like something really kind of i don't know below the surface is sort of seeping into um, you know our discourse here and and, and what,
0: uh, i mean can can you be specific or
1: are you afraid of being um dragged on twitter well i i mean of course that could happen uh, <laughs> but uh but no i i you know i think that uh i mean even getting you have a, a high end agent, I'm sure. But I mean, even just a, sort of the the gates that you have to sort of pass through anymore are so it's kind of hyper attuned to, uh, you know, uh, the um, let's say the reactions, the potential sort of landmines uh, that I think, you know, they're overtly, you know, sort of cautious in the kind of clients that they take on, uh, mm-hmm. the kind of projects that they'll represent, um, yeah. et cetera. Um, so... Well,
0: they're always like that, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, each, yeah, agency sort of represents something, um, uh, or they represent a certain kind of fiction or, you know, they have a certain kind of, uh, attitude that they sort of project about themselves. So Mm -hmm. that's not, not different, but I just mean that, you know, there's a, I don't know, maybe it's my own paranoia. I just kind of think that there's a lot more, um, at stake, uh, you know, with this, you know, um... Uh, way that we can now sort of voice our disapproval by ganging up on the person that we disapprove of or the, um, you know, uh, or the people, the publisher or the editor, you know what I mean? Of course. You you
0: are talking about social media because that's generally the way it's been happening, right? Like somebody has a beef with some, something somebody has done. um, And they just, you know, drag somebody on, on Twitter and it goes viral and that then that becomes a huge thing if if the, it seems like the person has a case, mm-hmm. um, but that I feel like there's plenty of times when that doesn't take too. So like it's just you know the, social media is just kind of like a big free for all, and anyway, and I think that's that's I'm afraid of being dragged on Twitter at some point, right? Like every time I go there, which I which is I've been going a little bit more often because COVID, because um, I'm just curious. Um, but every time I go, I'm like, Oh, I hope, I hope I don't have like a million, you know, a million notifications and like somebody, because somebody discovered something I did way in the past. And is like, like that, that panel you did (laughs) at the public theater, you You said this thing. Yeah. um, Yeah, That's really, made me Back in
1: those days. Right. (laughs) So
0: so we need to cancel you. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think there are lots of odd ways in which there's a, a, weird, there's a weird kind of hypocrisy that, that goes on with these things because on the one hand, it's, um, it seems to be about aesthetics and then on the other hand, it's actually about um, a capitalist model of dealing with culture in the first place, right? Because the people who do not make tons of money and get lots of attention um, don't get the same kind of um, reaction a lot of the time. And it's possible, as you said in your, in your email to me, like it's possible for people to sort of do things that seem as if um, were they to get that kind of money and attention would be, um, would be pilloried in the public sphere. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, I mean, I just feel like people are really – the thing that people are really complaining about legitimately is that that tradition of, you know, white publishers, which is like all of them, uh, getting really enthralled with things that have sort of terrible values, like, you know, this sort of paternalistic book that's like, you know, in the tradition of – Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Mm-hmm. Written by a white woman about oh those poor black people, right? Mm. Um, that has not gone away. That sentiment, that feeling. I mean, the, the help is ex- essentially, you know, the the resurrection of that. We see the resurrection of that in like at least one Hollywood movie a year that gets like some kind of Oscar nomination, right? It's like this is a thing that that has been going on for a very long time, and to to be part of, to be perceived as part of that tradition. Is like it's. I mean, I I feel bad for people who don't realize that they are part of that tradition when they are part of it.
1: Mm.
0: Um, but I think that's also how it happens, right? Like, if you were aware that you were doing this, you might not spend as much time doing it. Um, but then, um, but then. Uh, I, I, no, but I think I I think I said the thing I was going to say about the the opposite of that. Like there are lots of people who kind of fly under the radar, or they say things they they couch them in 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 humor. That's a really actually a good way of sort of saying the thing you want to say and not getting um, not getting uh, uh, dragged for it. A lot of the time is like if if you can say it in a way that feels funny and true, hmm. um, I think people give you a little bit of. Um, benefit the doubt unless you happen to be a comedian who is like you know groping people behind the scenes or whatever yeah like i think comedians are getting dragged for their personal life and not their actual material which is interesting
1: yeah <clears throat> yeah, it, it seems like dragging for the sake of dragging a lot of the time uh, you know that there's a target and, and everyone just kind of goes after that person. Yeah. but you know remember I, when drag was just drag yeah right In the good old <laughs> days yeah um, but you know I, I I think you're right I mean because it really does kind of depend on who's, um, sort of, uh, let's say, challenging whatever the you know sort of issue of the moment is. I mean, I think in my communication with you early on, I gave you a couple of examples of authors whose work, um, you know, kind of it sort of surprised me uh, that the reaction that I expected didn't happen. One was mm-hmm. Colin McCann uh, mm-hmm. in Transatlantic, his um, evocation of um, Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, traveling uh, through Ireland to experience the poverty and also kind of to stoke the fires of uh, uh, abolition. Uh, And, you know, I mean, of course... Frederick Douglass wrote about that journey too, or Mm -hmm. those journeys, because he made more than one. But uh, it's, uh, I just remember reading that and just thinking, oh my goodness, wow. You know, the great Colin McCann is about to go down the toilet, uh, (laughs) writing about, you know, Frederick Douglass daring to do that. And, uh, you know, there have been other sort of major authors whose works have been just trashed because- Well, why, why do you think it didn't happen in his case? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe because he's Irish. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, maybe not being American is, you know, um, kind of a parachute in a way, you know, in these uh, very sort of difficult situations. Um, I think the other example I gave you was John Updike. Uh, he published a book which was about, you know, a terrorist. Uh, and this was just before he died, and uh, I just remember, I didn't read the book, um, uh, but I just remember, you know, these it, reviews that had seem, seemingly nothing to do with the story and everything to do that with uh, his temerity to write a book like that, you know, uh-huh. uh, not being uh, from the Middle East and you know, be this white Harvard-educated guy from New England. Uh-huh. Um, and I, you know, I, I guess you know, in my my own orientation is is that I just have thought always that creative people uh, so, sort of live in a unique a unique space and. It's a kind of ruleless uh, space, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, you know, so the sort of the this um, I don't know territorializing that you can't do this and you can't right, do right. that uh, yeah. just really troubles me because it feels like you know we are heading for more of that. Now, of course, there may be a reaction to it, and it very likely. Uh, it, I mean, it's very possible uh, that you know we may not be done with the Trump administration and. Uh, you know, Uh, these Republicans, Republicans. yeah, well, (laughs) um, you know, and, um, if that's the case, then there's a whole nother kind of restriction that I think, uh, may, you know, sort of be imposed upon us and it may be legislated type of restriction. uh, Yeah. I mean, uh, adjudicated. Actually,
0: I remember one of the first things I said to my friend, Josh first, who's also a novelist, uh, after Trump won, I said, Wow. Look how easy it is to be a dissident writer now. Mm. It just got a lot easier. Although, I mean, the the interesting thing about this country is that um, instead of jailing writers, Americans, uh, the you know people who would who would jail writers have um, have convinced enough people that writing doesn't matter and that like nothing is true, um, that that they don't. Really, um, I mean, the the people who are kind of on the front lines of this are journalists, right? They're getting, you know, uh, discredited and and charged with um, making things up. Um, Whereas, you know, in other in other countries, there are people whose novels are actually suppressed um, by the government, um, or they're jailed by the government. And I I think this is a phenomenon that that a lot of sort of young American writers don't seem to understand is happening and like just how bad it can be for somebody to say something that is not, um, officially sanctioned.
1: Um, Yeah, no, that is that's so profoundly true. And, you know, of course, uh, the backlash uh, in this country, um, I think from, you know, the let's say the out party will be to attack in every way possible. So we may very well see, you know, this kind of um, 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 violent police aggression. Um, You know, coming our way uh, to basically stop us from speaking, um, uh, even sort of. Well, that's uh, already, isn't that already happening? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it certainly is. Uh, We're getting small dosages of it, but it's, you know, it's very possible that it could be something very big, something very dangerous. yeah, too many things going on at once, I feel. But uh, I wondered as an instructor, uh, a professor, um, you know, how do you sort of uh, navigate some of these, let's say, very sort of political issues? Or, I mean, do you at all uh, with when you're, you know, sort of teaching, you know, your students um, and uh, evaluating their work? And, you know, maybe, I don't know how you go, you know, what your process is, but well, you know, can you speak to that? A little bit, uh, but I have to kind
0: of divide it somewhat because uh, I teach in, uh, in an MFA program and a BFA program at the okay. school that I work in at, uh, at the Pratt Institute. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me as if there are slightly different ways of thinking among the student body. Uh, I feel like the undergraduates are a little bit more aware that they don't know anything and... Um, whenever I've had, uh, a class that I'm, I'm personally responsible for creating a tone in the class. Like, I feel like I've just said, like, everything is on the table. We trust each other not to be totally, you know, you know, not to, not to betray our values. And if people, you know, if people do things that are questionable, we talk about the work and we don't really assume that, that working, um that that saying something that feels un you know un unproductive let's say mm-hmm. um is is an indicator of like bad character um whereas i feel like sometimes in the mfa it can get to the level of like um you know students are a little bit older and they're a little bit more formed and they're a little bit more you know vigilant hypervigilant about um, political things. And it's something we encourage in this program too, actually, is like for people to think about, you know, the, the political, uh, meaning of what they're, they're writing or like, um, and so we we can get into like bigger scrapes there. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I don't, I think that's part of the, the, you know, vision of the program. I'm actually, I think that's actually really sort of exciting mm-hmm. unless it starts to, to get personal, and then that becomes uh, like a like a big problem for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, so I mean I guess the way that I personally negotiated as a teacher is to try to create um, when I am when I am one of the only people uh, teaching, because the, the the graduate course is taught by four different people. And so it's difficult for me just on my own to establish a tone of like goodwill. Um, and I think things get a little bit like, um, can get slightly, uh, uh, diffused by, Mm -hmm. by the fact that we are four people. And, you know, if you have two parents, you can play them off one another. If you have four parents, (laughs) you have like a lot you can do. Um, not that we're really authority figures in the first place. Anyway, We, I think we're, we're in this odd place where the students are expecting authority figures and we're actually much more like guides who are mm. trying to also learn things at the same time as we are teaching um, or to just be in the room with everybody and hear what everybody has to say. And sometimes I think it gets to be like confusing for everyone. Um, mm. But I love it. I mean, I love... I love a lot of the way that it works because in a lot of other MFA programs, um, things that are supposedly, uh, things that are actually political are looked on, um, as, you know, incidental or not, not relevant. And that, that can be pretty dangerous. Um, especially since you
1: know, oh, don't get me started. Don't get me started about yeah, the, I was the traditional say, you know, MFA, MFA program. Were like hot moments uh, where you know there Oof. was um, not only that confusion, but perhaps uh, you know um, uh, tempers uh, even. Um, well, I mean, I think that you know one of the one of the
0: insinuations that is often made in the traditional MFA program is that. You know, there is no politics like one shouldn't really address politics. One should write about, you know, white people with, you know, who, you know, where the biggest tragedy is like somebody put the wrong fork in the place setting, you know, put the fork in the wrong place in the place setting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's not quite that bad.
1: Big drama.
0: <laughs> it's either that, either it's that, or like you should be a, a soldier writing your memoir or, mm-hmm. you know, a white soldier, excuse me, writing your memoir about being deployed in, in a place where they're killing people of color. Um, <laughs> cause that's, that's toughness.
1: Um, and authentic,
0: <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I feel like I have to negotiate that in a lot of different ways at, depending on what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think I'm happiest when, when I, I can just just set a tone where anything is, it's possible for people to say anything they want to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, there'll be consequences if they happen to say something, you know that they, that it seems as if they actually believe. And they're, they're repeatedly like not listening to the people who are saying to them, look, that's not acceptable. Um, But I mean, that's part of what the learning process is supposed to be is learning how to say to people who are saying things you don't want to, you know, who who are saying things that you don't believe are productive in terms or progressive in terms of your politics. It's to learn to say to them that that is happening and have them hear it and adjust. And not to just alienate them and, you know, say, you know, criticize them personally, Um, but to focus on the ideas rather than, you know, the person.
2: Time for a short break. When we come back, James's protege gets a so-so review. And it's a good thing. Stick around. back to this bookable conversation with James Hanahan and Sean Stewart Ruff.
1: So, you know, I'm into in work in terms of my work, I'm really into um, a kind of social realism. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I live in urban spaces, as do you, I'm sure. Uh, And uh, I really kind of, you know, feed off of the energy around me. Uh, I find the language uh, to be Mm -hmm. um, exciting. I'm sure it's probably dangerous uh, to, you know, to the sort of outsider ear. But uh, to me, you know, it's uh, what I hear around me all the time. Uh, I grew up in uh, a Cincinnati Um, public housing um, Mm -hmm. environment. And so, you know, the kind of slang, uh, black Mm -hmm. slang, poor Mm -hmm. slang, Cincinnati slang, you know, it's just kind of part of my um, sort of, um, um, you know, my in portfolio of language. Uh, And in this neighborhood where I live now, it's uh, primarily Dominican. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, it's amazing to me the sort of similarities between, you know, Harlem uh, sort of, uh, identity language-wise, and and this neighborhood's uh, identity language-wise. It's just also including, you know, Spanish. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, for me, I think, you know, writing uh, about this community or where I live is uh, very loaded. Uh, and I don't think I ever will uh, precisely because I feel, you know, it might uh, not... Um, Come off well, not not that I'm overly concerned about that, but uh, maybe I would probably in the end just uh, sort of be weary of my own inauthenticity, you know, to sort of write. Well, I mean, doesn't that depend? Doesn't that depend to some degree on how you choose to approach writing
0: about it? It's Mm -hmm. you make it sound like you can't write about the neighborhood because people are Dominican in the neighborhood, but you're in the neighborhood and you're not, as far as I know, Dominican, right? Can you write about somebody who lives in the neighborhood who's not Dominican, who just has like Dominican friends or is that? Well, I'll I'll tell you, for
1: example, what I was uh, sort of thinking at one point. Now I, and I have written about my neighborhood, but I, and I figured out a very artful way of uh, doing it. So uh, I definitely have created a workaround, but I was, at one point sort of imagining um uh you know that uh this apartment building that i live in would mm-hmm. be um the sort of centerpiece of mm-hmm. um you know if not a story collection then a novel uh sure. that, but the majority of people living in this uh building are uh dominican there was a huge fire here a few years back and i was just really kind of amazed at what happened on the street uh you know during the fire uh the people who came out uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, Including, uh, you know, I mean, from different parts of uh, Washington Heights, uh, you know, um, Mm -hmm. um, these Latin gangs, um, uh, you know, drug dealers from different parts of the area. I mean, of course, the people who live here as well. I mean, there were... Uh, people in the neighborhood who were just curious to see what was going on, but we saw a lot of activity that you know we normally would see on Broadway, uh, mm-hmm. for for example. And so I was really, actually, really struck by that. And. Um, I did write a short story uh, about the fire itself, uh, you know, which I never did anything with. But, um, I, you know, I think the same kind of caution would maybe sort of make me a little less excited about, for example, writing about um, Jesse Fawcett Redman. Um, just because yeah. of the, you know, um, I don't know. I feel like, you know, talking from a woman's point of view um, may be a little much, um, you know, it seems... Um, maybe i'm sort of self editing or self restricting here but i I, mean, um, I don't know can you
0: show it to a woman do you know a woman can you well, get some can you do due diligence can you make sure that you're not like screwing it up that it's like it doesn't betray your values it doesn't like it's it's not going to seem sexist and it's you know going to have some like underpinning of authentic, authenticity even if you're not because you know the the thing i always tell people who want to write against gender is, if, and are struggling with it is like, especially if it's like, um, well, it actually doesn't matter. I mean, what I could say, say a, a, a female person who's uh, female identified wants to write a male character. I would just say like, you know, don't write a man, write a person because mm-hmm. men are people and then worry about like the, the maleness of that person later because you know, the trappings of masculinity are probably less important than, you know, the universal feelings of human beings. Um, And, you know, your first draft is definitely not going to be that great, no matter who you are usually. Um, So you just go back and, and, you know, comb through it and gradually something that feels more authentic is going to, you know, surface hopefully. And then, you know, before you you publish it, and in the New Yorker, which you're of course going to do if you
1: a short story. <laughs> oh yeah, um, just like <laughs> let
0: it, let a number of people read it beforehand and give you pointers and listen to them, and that's the really important part. Like <laughs> if you if you do all of this and you still think that you are, you know, the 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 authority on on men or on women or you know gay people or black people, then that is really the problem. It's not It's not that you might want to write something um, in which you inhabit some other character. I mean, this is, in, in a certain sense, this is pretty much the only trick in the novelist's wheelhouse, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. all you know how to do is imagine other people's lives with some degree of integrity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and you can't necessarily get... To the a point where, you know, you'll never get to a point where it's completely authentic, right? But what what you can get to is something more like verisimilitude, um, or you can say the thing you want to say without, you know, um, denigrating the humanity of the characters you're writing about.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think, th-
0: I mean, I think that's the important skill to learn is like not to not to worry so much about the, all these frankly superficial identity, um, markers that people, you know, people are doing this basically on like, you know, superficial identity markers, right? Because nobody really knows anybody from within. Mm -hmm. Um, so how can you, how can you really represent, truly represent people who have the same skin color, right? That's a, that's not a thing you can do all you can really do is represent a character in a book who may happen to in your you know in your writing may happen to have be you may describe them as having darker skin you may describe you know, the cultural environment in which they live as being you know a typical or atypical of but of of that culture but like you're writing about an individual Mm-hmm. And that individual should stand out even within whatever you know superficial identity marker you want you 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 give them right and this is this is a thing that is really sort of hard to get people to
1: understand, yeah well, and again you know um, I, I i the um, there is a sort of political force in play here too. That, I mean, you just think of it in terms of time. You know how much effort you have to sort of put to anything. I mean, mm-hmm. for myself, you know, I'm definitely on the slippery slope of life at this point. It feels like. Uh, well, that I shouldn't say it like that. Well, but I hope definitely on the podcast. <laughs> I'll live forever. in The podcast. <laughs> Thank God for podcasts. Uh, but but you know what I mean. It's a, a really a question of uh, value at some point too. I mean, don't get me wrong. I have my work cut out for me. I mean, I've mapped out a few big projects that I want to take on. But I'm amazed anymore how I'm just um, you know sort of. Uh, And and it isn't just me, it's other writers that I speak with, too, that there is the sense that, you know, um, you, um, if not sort of generationally, uh, have sort of, you know, uh, missed the moment uh, that, uh, you know, there are just so many sort of issues, I think, about writing anymore um, and publishing uh, that, um, you know, are just, I don't know, they make it a lot more sort of... um, um, I don't know didn't I, I don't they, think Didn't interested.
0: these issues I'm, I'm not sure which issues You're
1: talking about But I'm sure that they were worse Like 20 years ago Oh, for certainly for (laughs) minority writers, especially. Yeah. I mean, I, I, but I just, you know, I don't know the MFA programs uh, themselves. I mean, you just have to almost have to have that type of, uh, you know, credential uh, to be taken seriously uh, by media, et cetera. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that there, the stakes seem to be higher in some way. I mean, there are fewer readers. um, There is a much more sort of tight um, um, sense of like, um, you know, there are more books than ever, of course, but mm-hmm. um, I guess I just think that they're just You think they, people aren't finishing them? Possibly, you know, the Amazon factor has a lot to do with this too, you know, the way books are marketed and so on Anyway, that's probably way beyond, you know, what we need to concern ourselves with I do my work, don't get me wrong, I mean, there's no question about that But Do, I mean, do you mm-hmm. feel any kind of, um, you know, sort of I, I restriction isn't quite the word uh, maybe uh, just a sort of an awareness uh, of um, you know um, well I mean of being dragged uh, you know uh, you know of the potential for being um,
0: taken to town ta- taken to task for yeah. like some portrayal of some thing yes of course I do yeah um, but I feel like as I was saying like, one is really trying to write about individuals, mm-hmm. and not about you know generalized anything. When you're trying to create a character, I would I would hope, right? I I want I want to live in the world where people don't read a book like they don't, and and I think there's this we live more in this world than we are acknowledging, where where people don't read a book and think, oh, all black people are like that, right? Mm-hmm. I think we're beyond that point. Where anybody with a brain can pick up a book and not make that assumption, right? I would, I mean, I really hope that there's nobody out there who's picking up, I don't know, beloved and saying, like, oh, this is all black people's lives, right? Like, yeah, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> like oh, I'm so, and, they, and then they go out in the street and the, every black woman they see, like, oh my God, why did you have to do that? You know, like, I would hope that, that people are not that, you know, dumb frankly, um, and that black, um, black writing has, has reached at least the point where nobody is going to make that assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I feel like as long as you're emphasizing the humanity of the people that you're writing about and you can refer, I mean, sometimes I do catch myself referring to the, the characters and in, in novels I'm writing about as people, because that's what I'm trying to represent, like mm-hmm. a kind of complex, um, Uh, contradictory, um, sometimes crazy, sometimes like, like offensive, um, you know, profane, scatological sometimes, you know, like I'm trying to, to get at something that is like more human than just, you know, here's a hero, here's a villain, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, I'm trying, I, I hope and, and and getting a little bit at how how messed up and complex and joyful and beautiful and um, strange uh, human beings can be and and I hope the hope is that um, and stories and language and all of that coming together in one place um, and and hopefully people will be able to uh, See that that's what I'm doing, and I think that that is what people respond to when they don't give you a hard time mm-hmm. about your um, your having, you know, gotten out of your out of your lane, so to speak.
1: Yes, yes. Um,
0: like one of my one of my proteges, I shouldn't call him that because he's he's done quite well for himself. Is this white kid from Colum- from uh, uh, who went to Columbia and where I was teaching? Um. Who his his first novel is about is from the perspective of two different women. Um and he told me a few weeks ago that his his name's Rye Curtis. He mm-hmm. told me a few weeks ago that Roxanne Gay had had written a sort of positive review. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> Like it was semi-positive,
1: yeah. and he
0: didn't seem to understand how important that was wow. <laughs> to his well-being. <laughs> wow. That like you know, Roxane Gay had read his book and not wanted to like slit his throat for for you know crossing over this line. I mean, I think the other thing is that the advantage that he has is that he was raised by two women basically, hmm. and he has these people in his life who he can go to and say like, look you know, does this feel real? Does this feel authentic? And, you know, he's got lots of people that he can do that with. You know, it's not as if one is, you know, an author is is devoid of community. I know we do spend a lot of time like sitting by ourselves, looking at our laptops, but it's not as if, you know, a book should come out having never, you know, having no one else having seen it, but, you know, the, the writer and the agent, like that's probably a really bad idea.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, you know, I, f- I feel like if what you're writing about is a lot of different people, and I mean, you can't really dial this back so far that the only people you can write about are like people who share your identity or those, those identity markers that, that you think are most salient. I'm not even sure what I would do if I had to do that. Like, mm-hmm. people, I don't even know what, what, like, people like me are like my family. That's the only people I can really, <laughs> I can really
1: honestly say are kind of like me, but still not that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, Well, in fairness to Roxanne, I have to say that, you know, that infamous um, comment of hers, uh, stay in your lane, um, you know, what she seemed to be also quibbling or mostly quibbling with was the poet's, uh, you remember the context, the uh, poet had written some um, piece uh, that was published in The Nation. uh, Mm -hmm. uh, And the piece was about a homeless man, uh, basically, or a homeless woman, sorry, trying to sort of, you know, make it. And um, the poem. Well, that's,
0: that's was, it, that paternalistic tradition I'm talking about. Yeah. Like yeah. This, this thing where, like, you, you don't really fully humanize your characters because you're turning them into a symbol of something. Mm-hmm. And that's just as racist as turning them into a symbol of, like, you know, something ugly and horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, people can definitely feel, even if they're not able to articulate it, people are, can definitely feel the difference between, you know, characters that are, that are faky fake and an attempt to, to make a point about something and characters that feel, you know, like people, you know, mm. and I mean, it's much easier to write the early, you know, the, the former than,
1: than it is the latter. Yeah. Well, the, um, the poem, as I recall, was actually, you know, kind of moving um, Well, that's uh, for the slang. I mean, that seemed to be... So what, is, so
0: is uh, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. That's very moving, but it's like completely sentimental and horrible. Hmm. Um, I, I was just having a conversation with this. You know, my, my husband is a, about 10 years, well, he's like 11 and a half years younger than me. And I, he did not live through the 70s and he's very happy about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, <laughs> and I was I, I was explaining to him... Um, the cultural impact of that Tony Orlando and Dawn song, the uh, High Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak tree, (laughs) because it's like this terribly sentimental, like awful song that's like, you know, like sort of vaudeville tones in it. And, and, you know, uh, but it's, but over the years people have taken that idea and run with it. You know, the idea of, of tying a yellow ribbon and then tying a red ribbon. And then, like, the other day I saw, like, a moth ribbon, I think. Or, like, <laughs> like I think it was uh, the ovarian cancer one. It's, like, teal, actually. <laughs> a teal ribbon. It's almost like the hankies in the 70s, right? Mm.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. <I know. laughs> but a sincere version, like a sincere non-sexual kind of version of hankies.
1: Yeah, Yeah. well, I guess, you know, um, these things sort of uh, live uh, as long as there's a sort of generation of people who, you know, Uh, kind of approve of them. And then some boy, they just kind of disappear, you know. Um, But anyway, it's, um, you know, it's, I think it is still tricky uh, to uh, navigate these spaces. I mean, I agree with you, you know, uh, in, in investing, you know, in the humanity of whatever it is, or whoever it is that you're trying to sort of bring to life. Um, is really key in all this. But of course, there's no guarantee that you won't, uh, you know, kind of fall into it. Well, there are plenty of things you can do before
0: you publish a book that can keep you from screwing it up. Mm-hmm. Like this is, I think, And I think this is a thing that gets a lot of people into trouble, is that they don't do that. They don't do their, you know, due diligence. I, I refer to it as... Um, and and then they're you know they publish this book and they're kind of out on a limb mm-hmm. because you know for whatever reason they they manage to not see what the thing you know they should have seen was or like not see the uh, I keep saying Nazi they they manage to not see everything
1: yes 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 <laughs> which would be the worst possible thing you could do. Well, I, you know, for myself, I mean, I definitely have my, you know, my reading group that I submit everything to uh, mm-hmm. for opinion um, and feedback, etc. So I definitely wouldn't sort of step out without having uh, some yeah. confidence that uh, you know other people sort of get what I try to do here and uh, approve of it. Yeah, uh, but do too. you feel? Are you saying that you feel like you can only
0: the only thing you can do is write about? the lives of Black gay men, and
1: that's it. You know, that's actually interesting. I mean, I kind of wanted to sort of come full circle with you on that point, too, so I'm glad that you bring it up. I think I made a decision, you know, a long time ago that I wanted to really focus on the stories of uh, gay Black men while also acknowledging that I'm capable of writing about, you know, Black life, period. And in fact, I've kind of alternated uh, between, you know, Um, let's say um, a gay black man as the um, sort of hero of the story Um, Mm -hmm. and you know the family as being sort of central to um, you know whatever is going on in the story so that Mm -hmm. you know the story sort of moves between family and you know the black gay man Uh, Mm -hmm. but I could as easily you know uh, leave out the black gay man and just write a family story and be perfectly Mm -hmm. happy with that but you know at the time that I started writing fiction. Seriously, I really kind of felt like there was a point to be made. You know, I just happened to arrive on the New York scene uh, around the time that uh, other countries, uh, which was a Uh movement of uh, Black gay writers here Uh in New York City, uh, sort of, uh, but they had been around for a little bit, but they had really, you know, um, sort of uh, acquired a a much more visible presence. Uh, There was a book called um other countries published edited by mm-hmm. Joseph Be- Bean mm-hmm. who unfortunately passed away uh, oh, before yeah. he could really sort of receive the glory of what he had achieved uh, then there were, of course was basically like, like people was in Washington DC uh doing this narrative poetry uh that you know was very very provocatively black and gay uh so there was you know a lot going on here i i mm-hmm. you know Randall keenan recently passed away I know, and I uh, I so you know Rendell and i were um, uh, you know, at Random House um, uh, at the same time. And uh, he and I together kind of explored the Black gay literary scene here mm-hmm. in New York City. And mm-hmm. uh, we would go to some of the readings, et cetera. And I had lived in DC before coming to yeah. uh, New York. So I was familiar with uh, Essex Hempel and the scene that he was part of mm-hmm. in DC. But anyway, um, the point is, is that. It really did kind of inspire me to uh, to own this story of mine, mm-hmm. uh, and as a black gay man, and yeah. I've pretty much uh, you know kind of held by that. Uh, as I say, even though I my writing tends to kind of you know uh, veer in different directions in terms of who is the focus of it, but generally mm-hmm. there is always a black gay man at the center of the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, 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 and, you know, I I edited a book. I don't know if uh, you've ever heard of this book, but it was called Go the Way Your Blood Beats. Uh, And I think um, I I did. This book came out in 1996 and it was published by Henry Holt. Uh, But Mm -hmm. essentially it sort of, um, I would say, trotted the same ground that I just described. It was really looking at, you know, fiction in the sense of, you know, the presence of black gays. Uh, in the canon of African American literature, so there right, was yeah. one piece published in in the late from the late 1800s, and mm-hmm. you know pieces from the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, Uh, pieces you know from the 1940s 50s and of course a lot of contemporary fiction too um and of course the 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 thesis here was not about black gay men it was about um the black gay experience uh as Mm -hmm. part of the african-american experience Uh, so the stories kind of veered wildly between you know um let's say um Risky or risqué um, to being kind of more traditional, uh, to being sort of dangerous uh, in the sense of, you know, life-threatening situations, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sapphire Story, There's a Window, which was published in The New Yorker, was in this uh, piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But anyway, you know, it feels like that all the uh, sort of work that I've been trying to, um, you know, create has all been about... Um, in a way uh inserting black gay life into uh the canon. Of course there are a lot of writers doing that now too. So you know it's a mm-hmm. um a pointless task uh to a degree. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, say but that. nevertheless. Some uh, somebody at a reading once asked
0: me like why do you write about black people? Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a kind of funny question because it, it you know it's one of those things where it's presumed a lot of the time that one will will write about people who share some of those identity markers, um, at least a few of them with you. And I said, hiring practices. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Because it's really, I just, I I feel like I, one of the things I can contribute to literature, if I can be so pretentious as to imagine that I could contribute something to literature is um, just more black people depicted in literature Mm -hmm. and more You know, as people like to say, centering of Black people's lives um, and types of Black people that we have not seen represented in literature at all,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and you know that that is actually sort of what is exciting to me about my subject position. Um, But I don't necessarily feel as if I have to do that, Mm -hmm. and that. See, when I start to feel like I have to do something. That makes me want to not do it. That makes me want to do the opposite, like to take some insane risk that's going to upset people.
1: <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's in the blood. Trust me. <laughs> Are you saying this here first? Uh- <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, no,
0: I've said this before. Okay. And it's, you know, it's in the blood. Remember yeah. who my cousin is,
1: right? <laughs> Uh, yes. Uh, yes. Miss <laughs> Walker, right? Yes. Yeah, she's definitely a risk taker for sure. So, I mean, that, that, that,
0: my family has been a huge influence on me. There are a lot of artists in my family. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a weird family full of like preachers, artists, and military people.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's all
0: people, all people with a big mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: and they have got and your attention. lots of yeah.
0: lots of opinions and very particular
1: yeah
0: like hard-headed like you wouldn't believe
1: uh, well it but sounds wonderful it is it, you yeah. know
0: it it the more i the, the more i think about it the more i appreciate it because mm-hmm. you know when you're growing up you think you, everything around you is normal but now i'm like that was not normal <laughs> but in the best possible way <laughs>
2: Thank you, James, and thank you, Sean, for this incredible conversation. James Hanahan is the author of Delicious Foods. It's published by Back Bay Books and is available now. Sean stewart Ruff is the editor of Go the Way Your Blood Beats, an anthology of lesbian and gay fiction by African-American writers, and the author of Toss, Whirl, Pass, and Finlater, among others. Bookable is a production of Loudtree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall and comfortably in the short lane. We're produced by me, Beau Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixes and sound designs the show. Beau is Loudtree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com and subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you want to learn more about our guests, find us on Instagram at bookablepod and follow me, your host, at a little stern. We're back soon with another new episode of Bookable and we will see you then. This is Bookable.